This podcast was not produced in the studios of 3CR Community Radio, but rather under a kitchen table using a doona as soundproofing. But that doesn't mean the station no longer needs your financial support to stay on air. Our community is not just studios and microphones. It's people. People like yourself, who during COVID-19 value independent community information and creativity more than ever. So, we're counting on you to keep us on air. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and please support our June Station Appeal. Stay safe and thank you for your support. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today from Texas is Dr. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia, a historian and the author of a number of books, including Anti-Authoritarian Youth Culture in Francoist Spain and Far-Right Revisionism and the End of History. Thanks for joining us, Louis. Thank you for having me. I guess just to start off with, the title of your latest book, uh, Far-Right Revisionism and the End of History, I would seem to recall... Uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history thesis does seem like since then there's been a massive surplus of history since Frank cooked that one up. Uh, Can you explain what the end of history was supposed to be and what happened to it? The best way I like to describe the end of history was actually uh, when Fukuyama talks about it, he references Trump himself, uh, talking not just about the end of history, this sort of world where things slowly progress and there really is no more conflict. I think is one way to think about it. But at the end of it, of the book, so the far-right revisionism and the end of history, the end of history part, also he talks about a last man. And in that, he talks about this these men who at the end of history would become bored and would crave attention. And he actually, in the early 90s, references Donald Trump himself as one of these types of last men of history who would not be satisfied with things getting better. And so sort of the idea for the book was to think about what happens when that last man arrives. And I think Fukuyama doesn't really go past that. And I think Trump is almost prophetically his example of what happens when that upper class elite man doesn't have anything else better to do than to try to find more supporters or ways to laud themselves. So in some ways, yes, it was... A lot of people have thought of it as outdated, but when you go back to it, it actually did have a few things there that are worth looking back on. So history might not have ended, but there are ways of thinking about history being restarted again. And I think that's sort of where the role of the last man comes in, is you have these men who are so uh, contented in their lives that they need more. 
And when that happens, they try to look for something else. The subtitle of the book is Alt Histories. Could you tell us what alt history is? We hear about alt this and alt that. What's alt history? So the way I like to describe it is, imagine there's history, things that happened in the past. Historians tell history. Uh, We engage in debates about history. We look at primary sources. We look at other things that other historians have said, and they and we debate them. Right? These are it's an academic field. History. It's also history is this comes from the Greek for stories. So in some ways, it's stories that we tell ourselves to understand the world that we're around, what we're seeing, how we negotiate our own being in the present. But then alt histories is sort of this way, kind of borrowing from Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts, but also thinking about Richard Spencer's alt-right and thinking about sort of how is it that histories that are, we'll say, transformed or mutated and eventually deformed. And that's where we really get alt-histories. It's sort of cherry-picking elements of uh, maybe truisms, or it might be totally made-up events, or it could be conspiracy theories. And it becomes this sort of narrative that people believe as fact when in fact it's not history at all. And although it might look like history, it's really the aesthetics of history and not history in itself. But these histories are used to legitimate really fascistic ideologies or far-right ideologies. So if you were to tell a story about Trump as the last man, would you agree with his description of himself as being very stable and uh, a genius? Well, I think that's one of the examples of sort of making up alternative facts, right? He, in fact, would be totally in his own historical world. Um, An alternate timeline would be another way to describe sort of an alt history. He's definitely not stable and he's not a genius, but oftentimes he tries to portray this alternate version. And so I could imagine somebody in a hundred years coming across today and they see all this material. Um, The historian of the future will have to look at Trump's tweets. They'll have to look at the responses to his tweets. They'll have to look at news stories, every little bit of ephemera that the historian in the future would be able to find. And they would ask themselves, why is Trump saying these things? And in reality, it's to be able to construct his own worldview and to legitimate it. If he is a stable genius, then it hides the fact that he is not. And what do you think is the role of, we have this uh, figure like Trump, but I guess, what is the role of the his supporters in this story? How, how are they represented in this, I guess, meta-narrative? Well, one way to think about it is we're, we really are talking about meta-narratives, and I think that's a really good word. A lot of identitarians um, on, the, on the far right talk about meta-politics. Uh, and one of their main goals is to create a politics of politics that allows for the normalization of radical far-right ideas. And I think what happens um, with Trump supporters, it's a combination of oftentimes not knowing where to look. It's not knowing who to trust. It's quite frankly, not having the interest in looking at differing opinions, which in itself is sort of a fascistic tendency to want to have this one pure idea it's only one way of thinking the world could be or should be. And so in some ways, Trump supporters, they sort of buy what he's selling. But at the same time, they're 
making this choice. They're not passive. Your first book was about uh, anti-authoritarian youth culture in Franco Spain. I was wondering, do you see parallels between Franco Spain and Trump's America? And do you see parallels between the moment that we're currently in with the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, and the anti-authoritarian youth culture you wrote about? Most of my research when I was working on my PhD was on the ways that young people tried to subvert the Franco dictatorship. So Franco um, was in power from 1939 until his death in 1975. And he had um, basically what we historians call a, a national Catholic regime. So in a lot of ways, his ideas were not too far from what we might see from Steve Bannon to kind of give you uh, sort of anchor there. And the way that young people under Franco uh, try to find ways to subvert the dictatorship was using the new technology of the time, the Xerox machine. Uh, that might be a good way of thinking about this, is trying to get your message out there. They did a lot of copying and pasting. They moved um, a lot of censored material, censored material that would not have been allowed to be sold or distributed in Spain under the dictatorship using this new technology. And so you kind of get some comparisons there. A lot of times what um, young people did under Franco's dictatorship is they turned everyday events, like maybe the funeral of a philosopher, into a protest. So uh, there would be a pro uh, philosopher who is moderately liberal, and we'll say very moderately, um, Jose Ortega y Gasset was his name. And this guy dies, and the students in the University of Madrid decide that, well, they're not illegally, they're not legally allowed to have a protest. But what they are allowed to do is participate in a funeral march. And so they turn the funeral marches into de facto uh, protest marches. And so you see a lot of those types of things. Now, um, I think Franco's dictatorship was a lot more, we'll say, locked down than what the U.S. is currently in. So Trump does, I think Trump's ideal would probably be a situation that Franco was in. Fortunately, the type of subversion that the U.S. is having right now is more direct, that you can go into the streets and protest, whereas that wouldn't have really been allowed in Franco's Spain. In terms of this youth culture, there was propaganda that was produced and youth took the opportunity when they could to assemble in the streets. Did they create other forms or other structures that allowed them to perpetuate this culture over time? So the way I like to think about the way that these young people challenged actual fascism in their everyday life was by doing small things in their everyday lives. And I think that really was sort of the key there. Um, so in the Spain case, they would have secret poetry gatherings in which they would talk about political ideas. They would talk about politics that were happening elsewhere. And so it was oftentimes trying to do their subversion by hiding it. And I think these are this is important whenever you get to sort of a real lockdown situation. So imagine if, for example, if in the U.S. all of a sudden Antifa or the idea of anti-fascism were to become considered a terrorist organization, what somebody in Franco Spain would do is they would rename what they're talking about. You would come up with new slang. You would come up with new language. And so it becomes sort of a moving target. And I think those are one of those are the sorts of lessons that you can learn whenever you're talking about a dictatorship that's um, more heavy handed or where you've lost your ability to actually talk. 
But also, I think what you see is in Franco Spain, especially in the 1970s. So you start to see young people who are listening to music that is subversive, that's empowering to women. You see those types of things seeping into the country. And I really do think that there's something to be said about uh, having popular culture that, while not maybe not saying that it's explicitly anti-fascist, uh, do in some way tackle things that are actually anti-racist or anti-misogyny or anti-classist, all these types of things, right? And so, and a lot of the music from the 60s and 70s that all of that all of us know were sneaking their ways into Spain. And so I think that there's a really powerful way that anti-fascists can learn how to sort of use culture to change minds, especially those who are maybe more afraid to take that step into the street. The other question is, how did the Spanish state go about uh, creating an authoritarian regime? And how did it go about suppressing history and memory? I think the best example that I could talk about, and I do this, um, I talk about this in both um, both my books, is sort of the role of the children's textbook. And the ways that, for example, the Spanish Civil War under Franco um, was called the Spanish War of Liberation, right? So what are you being liberated from? You're being liberated from those leftists, from uh, the feminists, from the queer poets like um, Federico Garcia Lorca. So in a lot of ways, textbooks are really the first exposure that people have to history. Um, apart from that, it's also films and the way that history is depicted in films. Who do you choose to show in your films? And so it kind of goes back to the sort of questions that we talk about today and questions of representation. And I think that one way to think about the way that history is rewritten, it's often rewritten in a way that's so close to what could be true or that sounds true. And that's really where the insidious nature of the alt history comes from. It's it's close enough to what you doubt or you think yourself. And I think that these are the types of things that get perpetuated. A really good example is, I don't want to call him a filmmaker, but the propagandist uh, Dinesh D'Souza, couple, several years ago, came out with the book The Big Lie, uh, which is essentially making this argument that Hitler was actually a socialist, and thus Nazism is a result of leftism. And it became a film, and a whole sort of element came out of this popular culture. People went to watch this movie, people read this lackluster book, and they believed this lie this alt history. And I think that's sort of one of the the things that academics are really bad about is we're really good at arguing with ourselves about history, but talking to the public about sort of what is fascism, that's been a sort of more difficult thing. And it gets uh, left to the side so long that people forget what fascism even was, really. It's not just a question of how the right is telling their histories or how the far right or the fascists are telling their histories, but it's also how are uh, historians engaging with people to talk about what had happened, 
what can we understand of the past? You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently speaking to Dr. Louis Dean Valencia Garcia about alt history and Franco Spain and all sorts of things. But did you know that 3CR is currently running a fundraiser? You can go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and help keep conversations like this that I'm fairly sure you won't hear anywhere on commercial media on the air. In Australia, historical revisionism, uh, I guess one of the core examples of it would be uh, the, sort of the, the culture wars that revolve around how Indigenous Australians were treated and continue to be treated. In New Zealand, there are, there's a movement to uh, deny that the Maori were the first people in New Zealand and that there were pre-Indigenous European uh, colonisers. What do you see as the relationship between historical revisionism and the perpetuation of colonialism? Um, I don't know if any of you have ever um, read the Ten Ten Children's books. Yes, by any chance. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I think I think it's the number one uh, most popular children's book in Europe. And in Ten Ten in the Congo, Ten Ten goes to the Congo and he starts teaching these Congolese children who are um, grossly depicted. Their Hergé is uh, quite infamous for his racist depictions of the Congolese, but in this. Tintin's going to the colonies and teaching them their history, Belgian history. And I think it's a really apt example of talking about sort of what is valued as history and what are the categories. So, for example, if um, somebody is saying that Europeans were in X place millennia earlier, the first thing that I as an historian would say is, there were no Europeans before there was a Europe. And the concept of Europe only comes up whenever we're talking about the rape of a Phoenician woman by Zeus in the ancient Greek tale. So even the myth of Europe, that a Europe even exists, comes from mythology. It comes from a story about Zeus turning himself into a bull and raping Europe, a woman from Phoenicia. And so if we're saying that um, Europeans are trotting around the Pacific millennia ago, but that's simply not true. There is no, there are no Europeans. So I think it's one of those things that uh, historians they might get into their caveats here and there, but it's really easy once you start to think about well, what are these categories that we're inventing? So we're saying somebody who was from, we'll say, a different branch of humans is wandering around the Pacific. Okay, maybe. That doesn't mean that they're Europeans. They certainly didn't think of themselves as Europeans. And that means that we can't put those, our modern day concepts onto the past. It seems as though the this uh, desire to tell a story uh, in some way grants a certain kind of political legitimacy to uh, contemporary expressions of identity. Can you speak to how history functions as in that way? And why it's such a, a battleground? I think part of it is sort of the myths that po that people popularly think about history. So there's sort of those old tropes: the winners write history, history repeats itself. Those sort of things that everybody has heard about history. One history never repeats itself exactly. There might be things that echo, but there's never anything that repeats itself exactly. And if history is any example. It's oftentimes not the winners that win um, that write history, but also losers. 
So, for example, in the United States, uh, there are several military bases named after Confederate soldiers. Theoretically, the Confederacy lost. So how is it that their histories are still being perpetuated? I think that part of what we're talking about here is sort of people not always understanding that histories are things that we invent to understand where we come from, which is a good instinct, right? We want to know how we got to where we are. But the problem comes whenever we start to specifically leave out evidence or when we leave out fact or even invent wholly new facts to just legitimate how we got to where we are. And I think for political purposes, that's very effective. Um, if somebody says that, for example, a good U.S. example would be people talking about the American Civil War. Uh, some people on the far right would say that the American Civil War was about states' rights. It wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights first. But if you actually look at the evidence the thing that people are talking about in regard to the Civil War during the Civil War is slavery. That was the issue. Now, you might find an example here and there where somebody is trying to come up with a different type of argument that involves um, some sort of states' rights issue, but those are the minority by far. And so it becomes politically expedient for somebody to say, well, this is what it was about. And I think that that's sort of what you see with a lot of alt histories and the way that alt histories clash with history is that in the public imagination, most people aren't looking at primary sources. They're not reading books about history. They're watching films. They're watching TVs. They're looking at memes, right? This is the way that people consume their history. Uh, podcasts, that's another good way. And because of that, there's more chance that somebody might just trust somebody. So, for example, somebody's listening right now, I would say, don't trust me necessarily because I'm just telling you this. Go to my book. There are parts where try to find a free copy somewhere. Libraries are great. Go to the footnotes and you can see what I'm citing. And I do this with students all the time is let's figure out where they're actually getting this information. Is it backed up? And do we trust the source? And so I think like those are really rudimentary things, but it does it makes it hard for most people to be able to do that sort of work, right? Like, you, who has time to do that? So because of that, oftentimes we sort of trust history to be told to us, uh, watching bad uh, documentaries sometimes. There's also some really good stuff out there. But it's hard for a lot of people to tell when and where those sort of lines are. So just to finish, Louis, could we ask for your observations about what's going on in the United States at the moment? And what role do you think history and the understanding of history has in this current context? So one way I like to think about this is it's been building up. This There's ways, so history doesn't repeat itself, like I said earlier, but I do think that there are things that we can see that, okay, we're in the midst of a pandemic. Most of the people who have been affected are people of color, uh, most heavily hit, we'll say, people of color, lower income. And on top of that, we have social injustice that's longstanding, going back centuries, if you want to draw a straight line to slavery. So we can also just stop in the middle of the 1950s and look at 
redlining, where black people in the United States were not allowed to get loans to buy houses. They were not able to get mortgages. And so wealth inequality grows there. And so a lot of what we're seeing now is, I think, really in line with what one would expect whenever you're having such disparity and policing of a group of people. I think the comparisons that I want to make are thinking about May 68, thinking about the Black Panthers and sort of what was the history of more militant activists in the United States. Uh, Why was that history not as, uh, we'll say, talked about as much as the peaceful protests? And I think part of it is thinking about, well, how do you deal with a society that hasn't feels that they have not been making any significant gains, right? And I think that's a big part of sort of what we're looking at. We can also look at revolutions past, Europe in the um, in 1848, or the French Revolution, or the Haitian Revolution, um, importantly. Thinking about how do people try to find a way to let their voice be heard. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, is a lot of very frustrated upset, hungry people. And yeah, this shouldn't be surprising to anybody. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Louis. Thank you. Yeah. If people want to read more of your stuff, you're on uh, Twitter at at Burnt Citrus, where you can find out more about uh, anti-fascism history and One Direction, I believe. Yeah, I'm a big One Direction fan. You know, Um, all of the boys have stepped up and um, said that they're uh, anti-racist this week, so we're good. <laughs> Perfect. But the the one D stands are going to have to really step it up if they want to match the K-pop stands. I think. I know. It, practice. <laughs> well, thanks very much for joining us, Louis. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that was very interesting, Andy. Hmm. Now, history cam history. Indeed. If there's one thing that history tells us, it's that change is determined by political struggle, and three CR is part of that struggle critiquing existing structures, amplifying new voices and visions, and we need your help to keep going. If you would like to help keep 3CR on the air, please go to 3cr.org.au slash donate and uh, chuck us some money for the uh, June station appeal. We're not doing a radiothon this year. We uh, It's entirely online. You may have heard about the, uh, the chest bug going around. So if you could go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. If you value this show and if you value this station, please donate. And when you do, say it's for Yeah Nah Passaran. That would be terrific. Thanks. Thank you. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later. I've got fire for a heart. I'm not scared of the dark. You've never seen it look so easy. I got a river for a soul And baby, you're a boat Baby, you're my only reason If I didn't have you, there would be nothing left The shell of a man that could never be his best If I didn't have you, would never see the sun You taught me how to be someone, yeah All my life, you stood by me When no one else was ever behind me All these lights, they can't blind me With your love, nobody can drag me All my life, you stood by me When no one else was ever behind me
3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. 